last week, I preached on wasteful worship. Wasteful worship. What does it mean to break our alabaster jar at Jesus' feet? What does it mean to give him a worship that he fully deserves? And I ended last week's sermon asking this question. I asked this question, so what is the secret to a lifetime of wasteful worship? Not just a flare here or there, not just a moment of passion here or there, but a lifetime of wasteful worship. And it sounds almost too simple to be true, but it is simply to look upon Jesus. Look upon Jesus. He alone is the ultimate example of wasteful love. Do you need inspiration? To give him wasteful love, then look at the one who has exemplified it perfectly for us. Because when we were fallen, when we were broken beyond repair, when we were rebellious beyond contrition, when we didn't even know God, this God loved us wastefully, sacrificially. He did what was actually unthinkable in taking on all of our sins and dying our death on the cross. And so when you feel dry, and this is something that often happens to me. I am a pastor, yes, but I don't always wake up every morning wanting to worship the Lord. I don't wake up every morning ready and eager to go into his word. There's days where it's really hard. There's days where the last thing I want to do, you know, is worship God. There's situations where I'm in where the last thing I want to do is, you know, carve out some time for prayer. But it's especially important That in those moments, I fix my eyes on Jesus again. For me, that's become a red flag. Let me explain it to you this way. If my heart feels very dry, it usually means that I'm not seeing Jesus properly. So when I have a problem with prayer, when I have a problem with worship, when when I'm not responding to God in the way that I should, usually it's less of an issue you know, of, let me say it this way. It's less of an issue of my mouth that is not worshiping right and not praying right. It's usually more an issue of my eyes. I'm not seeing God rightly. I am forgetting that he's a God who's beautiful. He's a God whose greatness we cannot fully understand. And so it has something to do with my understanding, my view, my perspective on who God is. Because something that I said the last week, because wasteful worship, it, is, it doesn't boil down to a style. It doesn't boil down to a preference. It's not a personality type. It is not a contemporary versus non-contemporary. It's not a charismatic versus conservative. It is not a loud versus quiet. That's not what wasteful worship is about. It's about an authentic response of the heart to a God who's worthy of our lives. So you can worship God wastefully and extravagantly without having to lose your voice, although sometimes you do. I think today I almost did. It's not necessarily because it's loud that it is wasteful, but it is an authentic response of the heart to God that is worthy of our lives. So today I want to expound on something that I barely touched on last week. I kind of just threw this in there towards the end of the, ser- uh, of the sermon. This idea of transformative beholding, transformative 
beholding. So today's message is actually titled Beholding and Becoming. Beholding and Becoming. If you have your Bibles with you, um, I ask, uh, I'll ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So I'll give you a second to find it in your Bibles. It's close to the end of your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I hope everyone's sort of awake for for this passage, because in true Apostle Paul fashion, it is very hard to follow, okay? It is very hard to follow, so you'll have to stay with me and stay as engaged and as, as alert as possible. 2 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 1 all the way to verse 18. So 2 Corinthians 3. Verses 1 through 18. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV today. We'll also have slides so you can follow along if you don't have your Bibles with you. So verse 1, it reads, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. It sounds like a tongue twister, right? For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Amen. This is a passage where Apostle Paul is talking about this new covenant. He's a messenger not only of the old covenant, but now of the new covenant through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And all of this passage is kind of very convoluted. Sometimes it helps to read in a simpler translation. Let me explain it and simplify it in this way. So Paul is talking about the old covenant under the law given to Moses, literally the 10 commandments that were given in tablets of stone on top of Mount Sinai and the new covenant now given to mankind, not on Mount Sinai, but on Calvary. And he is drawing a comparison between these two things. Um, If, if we can show the chart, On one side, we have the old covenant. It is one chosen man, Moses, the one chosen man who gets to go up this mountain. But in the new covenant, it's not just this one chosen man. It is we all, all believers get to hypothetically go up this mountain. The old covenant was written on stone tablets, literally written by the finger of God was written on these stone tablets, but the new covenant is not on stone tablets. It's written on human hearts. The old covenant required a veiled face, and it was a one-time beholding. What happened was for 40 days, Moses went up this mountain, and he was encountering the Lord. He received these Ten Commandments, and when he came down, literally his face was shining so much that people would ask him, put on a veil, because it's like staring into headlights. Like It's, it's like that feeling. You, you, you guys have ever like seen a car that has headlights that look like high beams? like really, really annoying where it kind of blinds you. It's kind of like that. And so he had to actually wear a veil because the glory shining on his face from meeting with God for 40 days was so brilliant that people needed him to kind of tone it down. And so it was a veiled face only after 40 days of beholding. But in the new covenant, we actually with unveiled face get to continually behold God's glory. Far greater than 40 days up in Mount Sinai. The old covenant had a fade in glory. So maybe on day one, you know, Moses needed to keep his face veiled. Day two, a little less. Day three, a little less. Day four, a little less. And eventually he could take off his veil without blinding people. It was a fade in glory. But in this new covenant, we are given a promise of ever increasing glory. Ever-increasing glory, like you take up the voltage up a notch every day. It's not a glory that fades away, but it's an ever-increasing glory. Some translations will read from glory to glory to glory. And lastly, the old covenant is through the law that brought death and condemnation. A law that was able to diagnose our brokenness and our need for God, but not able to save us from the death and condemnation that are brought. The new covenant comes through the spirit that brought not death and condemnation, but life and freedom. We at New Philly, we toss around, you know, this verse a lot where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
We have songs that, that sing this. This is where it's from. It's not just talking about jumping up and down during a worship service. It's talking about a freedom that we've been given through this spirit to with unveiled face behold God's glory. Our faces should melt off. You know, if we were just staring straight at God's glory, we shouldn't be able to take it. And yet through this new covenant, we are given access with unveiled face to stare straight into the glory of God. And we go from one degree of glory to the next and to the next and to the next. This is the life of a believer. This is the life of someone who has been born Again, through this new covenant, a life that has been given the promise of going from glory to glory, not as autopilot, not as, well, if you have been a Christian for five years, uh, you'll have a certain degree of glory and then you'll upgrade to the next degree of glory. And then to, it doesn't work that way. It is hinging on this one thing with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. A few months ago, I was, you know, talking with some uh, leaders from uh, this ministry called International House of Prayer in Kansas City. And we were asking them questions, you know, about what they believe the church is greatly in need of. And the one thing that they said is the church is in great need, not just of spiritual disciplines, but learning to behold the beauty of God. Nothing guarantees a heart that is alive and spiritually hungry than staring straight at the beauty of God. And that's something that we've lost over time in our rush to get to what's pragmatic, to what's measurable, to what we could check off in a box in our rush to make things overly practical and overly simplistic. We've forgotten as a generation what it means to behold the beauty of God. There's a great vacuum there in the church. We don't know what it means to behold. We don't know what it means to sit and stare straight at God. In our generation, especially when our attention spans are ever decreasing, the only thing that we know how to behold is our phone, usually. You can stare at your phone for hours, can't you? There's nothing else that you can stare at, like, you know, for that extended period of time without getting bored. And the only reason is that because, like, whatever you're staring at is ever-changing, right? If Imagine you're just staring at a black screen. I don't think I could do this for more than 10 seconds, right? You get bored right away. In our generation, we have no patience for beholding. We don't understand what beholding means. Beholding means... It means... Not just casually glimpsing at something, not just casually looking at something, but giving it your full attention, giving it your undistracted, uncompromised attention. And we don't know how to do that as a generation. This is my personal belief. This is one of the biggest reasons why our passion, why our disciplines, why our character, why the barometer of where our faith is, it fluctuates so much. Because we get a good glimpse of Jesus and then we forget. We get another good glimpse of Jesus and then we forget. 
But this understanding of continually staring at the beauty of God, it does something to us. According to 2 Corinthians 3, it should be taking us from one degree of glory to another. This past week, I was meditating on this specifically because next month, we're coming up on 10 years of our house of prayer. Our house of prayer, K1 prayer tab. K1 is short for Kingdom First prayer tab. It started in April of 2011. That's already 10 years. 2011 was 10 years ago. Can you believe it? Yeah. (laughs) It feels like it shouldn't be, right? But yeah, it was 10 years ago. And it was something that was birthed out of a desire to give God his due. To give God glory. To give ourselves to staring at Jesus, learning his word, praying his heart. It was a ministry that was birthed out of that desire. An audience of one. Doesn't matter how many people are in the room. We're still going to worship the Lord. Doesn't matter if people are tuning in. We're still going to worship the Lord. The only person whose presence matters here is the Lord. And that was the heart and the purpose and the intent with which we started K1 prayer tab. And so over the years, I've actually, I was there not from the very beginning, but only a few months into it, probably from September of 2011. I've been through so many prayer sets and prayer watches where there was nobody in the room, like not a soul. It was just like me on the stage, probably somebody on sound or slides or something, or just the team serving there, but there was not a soul. And it was in those times where I was so challenged to really believe that it's worth my time. Like, I'm going to still give it my all for two hours. I'm still going to worship like it's a full room for two hours because the Lord is here. Because it blesses his heart. Because the only attendance that matters is the Lord's. And so there would be some days where I was just so challenged. You know, like... We'd be like worshiping and then somebody enters their room. We're like, oh, oh, somebody's in the room. And all of a sudden, like, oh, better make sure I'm playing the right chords. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden you're like attentive. That shouldn't be the case. You know, we still give God our best because God is there. And doing that for almost 10 years now, like it has built a certain muscle in me where I am less and less tempted to be swayed by who's in the room. I'm less and less tempted to be swayed even by how I feel in the given moment. Because imagine coming into an empty room at 8 a.m. in the morning to set up 30 chairs. Probably only one of them is going to be used. You know, you're setting up mics and, you know, you know, sound equipment, making sure that video stream is on all like all of that. And, you know, you're ready to start by 930 and You close your eyes and you're like, okay, whether anybody walks into the room or not, this is a time that I've carved aside for the Lord. And the only thing that's going to make it worthwhile is if he's here. So you better be here. And this is the one reason why I'm going to show up week after week. The one reason. It's not going to be anything else. I'm going to have no other reward than simply blessing the heart of God. And that muscle that has been trained over years, especially when I didn't want to, especially on those extra hard mornings or extra late evenings, 
especially in those days, that really taught me what it means to behold the Lord and to give him glory regardless. One more thing that that actually did, I don't know if you understand like our, the span of our church history. Our church has been through a lot. Our church has been through some very high highs and also some very low lows, very, very low lows. And during that time, there really wasn't very much to hold on to. Everybody was having a very rough time. There's very few people that you could go to for support. And sometimes it was simply in that place of prayer and worship where God himself would come and minister to me. When I would walk in with anxiety, I would walk in with pressure. I'd walk in with fear in my heart, with panic in my heart. And throughout those two hours, something would happen where I would stare at God just for these two hours. And somewhere along those two hours, the weight would just lift off. It's like something would be broken off in God's presence. I would walk away with an understanding. God is so much bigger than this. Like God, he cares about our church. Yes. But my life is in his hands. My future, my destiny is in his hands. Even if the worst case scenario was to happen, I'm still in his hands. And I would walk away with this confidence that had nothing to do with my circumstances. It had everything to do with who God revealed himself to be. And that's what it means to be transformed by beholding the beauty of God, beholding the glory of God. There wasn't a sermon that was preached. There wasn't a counseling session that happened. There wasn't a step-by-step, okay, you need to do this and do this and do this, and you'll see how anxiety dissipates in your life. It was just simply staring at the beauty of God, being reminded that he's worthy. And something about doing that would realign my thoughts, would realign my heart with where it needed to be, with God's truth. And so this verse, it is, yes, kind of, you know, like, what does even beholding mean? It sounds so impractical. Yes, it sounds kind of out there and meta and like very intangible, but it is probably one of the most practical things that the Apostle Paul is giving to us. Do you want to become more Christ-like? Behold the glory of God. Do you want to see greater sanctification in your life? Behold the glory of God. Do you want to see greater Christ-likeness in your relationships? Behold the glory of God. You will not be able to help but to become more Christ-like as you do that. We were made to become more and more like Jesus as we stare at the beauty of God. Three things that Apostle Paul lays out for us, especially in the last couple of verses. For people who say, all right, fine, I'll do this beholding God thing, but I don't need to care about anybody else. It's just going to be Jesus and me. Apostle Paul makes it very clear that we're called to get with community. To get with community. It doesn't say, I behold the beauty of God. It says, we all, collective." corporate, we all all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God. We're called to be a family and a body that goes on this endeavor together. That, uh, that, um, what's the word? I just lost the word that, uh, 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 chases after this thing together. 
We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God. It is a corporate endeavor. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We need each other. We need each other. This year and last year, it's more evident than ever before. We need each other. We cannot make it through without one another. We were made to live in community. We were designed to live life together. This thing that we call church and gathering or house church is not just a program. This is a lifeline. This is a necessity for us to make it through. This is not just an extra. This is not just something that we throw on to our spiritual walk, but that is something that is necessary and prescribed by the Lord for our good. Now, I have this. Um, I'm going to need a little bit of audience participation if it's okay. Can I ask, um, so Daisy and Eugen, just to look at something that I have on my phone? Could you come up really quick? Yeah, no pressure. Okay. I'm going to show it to you guys. Okay. Can you read it together at the same time? Okay, okay. Okay. What you saw happening here is exactly what happens with community. I intentionally did something, you know, where I typed something really, really small, right? (laughs) No, 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 no. So what you saw here is exactly what happens in community. They didn't realize it, but they were getting closer and closer together. They were huddling around this one thing. They were both trying to, you know, figure out what's written on my phone, right? And it was like, like really, really small intentionally, right? You're supposed to squint. But the whole point was like, I wanted you guys here in the room to see what happens when two people are trying to see the same thing together. They were inevitably getting closer to each other as well. That's what it means to be in community. And that's what our house churches are about. It's not just community for Kubaya's sake, right? We are staring together at this one God. And the closer we draw to him, the closer we actually end up being with one another as well. It will be inevitable as our eyes are fixed on Jesus, as our, uh, as, as our uh, meetings are grounded on his word. And as we're all staring at this thing together, we're going to be drawn closer together as a community as well. That's a byproduct. It's not even our prior, like we're not doing unity for unity's sake. It's an, an inevitable byproduct of staring at the beauty of God together. And that's what it means to be community. What's the difference between a house church and a, and a book club? You know, what's the, what's the difference between, you know, a concert and, and a praise gathering? The, the difference is that we're staring at this one thing and that unites us together as one that makes us a family that makes us a body because we are united by one faith, one God. That is what community means. And so even as we're thinking about this house church season, that's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like people huddled around a phone. Like it's going to look like people trying to stare intently at the word of God together. And you're going to find that you draw one step closer together, one step closer together. And you're going to find yourselves surrounded with brothers and sisters who are after the same thing. Get with community. We all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of God. 
The next thing that this passage tells us about is the importance of beholding the glory of God with unveiled faces. Beholding means to gaze upon, to take in, to observe with full attention and sustained intensity. It's not just a casual glance. Beholding the glory of God. Feasting, feeding our souls on the glory of God. All it takes is just one glimpse. All it takes is one glance at this beautiful God. And that has the power to change your life. And I can say this without exaggeration because I've seen this happen over and over and over again. Have you ever had this thing where you, you know, sing a praise song, for example, and you know the lyrics by heart? And you're just singing kind of mindlessly, just following along with the lyrics. And then there's a moment where just something clicks. Something clicks and all of a sudden you feel like you're seeing the lyrics for the first time. And you're seeing God for the first time. And you feel like you're drawn a step closer. That's actually beholding God. That's actually seeing intently, seeing more clearly who this God is. Behold the glory of God. Don't be content with just a glance here or there, a casual glimpse here or there, learning to behold the glory of God. For people who preach this for a long time, I never understood it for years and years and years. I was like, how can you not get bored? How can you not get bored with this book? Like, I, how can you not get tired of this? Like, imagine you're reading the same chapter over and over again. How can you not get tired of it? Or, you know, like singing this song or worshiping this God. Don't you run out of things to say? Don't you run out of revelation to receive? Don't you run out of thoughts? Like, don't you get bored at a certain point? Don't you reach the end at some point? And the whole point of God is that, no, you can't reach the end of God. If there was anything that was bottomless, that was limitless, where you never will reach the end, where you never will be able to say, okay, I'm done. I know everything there is to know about God. If there's any subject in the entire world, it is God. And that's the promise that is given to us through the word. God's greatness is unsearchable. You feel like you know God now, but wait another five years. Wait another 10 years. With another 20 years, you'll know God much better then, and still you'll only have scratched the surface. Still you'll only have tasted the tiniest bit of who God is. That's the excitement that comes from beholding this God, where he is someone who is bottomless. He'll never reach the end. I was talking to someone earlier today about, you know, how I know myself enough to know to not get Netflix, you know, not get a Netflix account. I know myself well enough. I have zero self-control when it comes to certain things. And so what I do financially is very stupid. But what I do is actually, if I do want to watch something like, you know, a movie, um, I will get on iTunes. I'll actually rent it for $3.99 or $5.99 or however much it is, and I'll watch it. And then that's it. For me, it needs to be like, it needs to hurt to watch something. And it needs to be inconvenient. I need those like barriers there. 
That's those safeguards there. I can't just be like scrolling through and be like, oh, just one more episode. Oh, just one more episode. Or like, oh, I heard about this show. I can't do that. Not with something that is streaming and not something that was basically bottomless. I don't have, I, I know that I have that capacity to like, if you ever see me go missing for three months, it means I got a Netflix account. Okay. So pray that it never happens, but that's just the way that I'm built. I'm like very like addictive in terms of like personality. And so when I like something, I can get super absorbed in it. And so for myself, this is my personal safeguard. I'm like, I'm never getting a Netflix account because you won't ever see me ever again. There's too many shows. There's too many great things out there. And so I need these limitations. Can you imagine if Netflix, every show was great and every show was like mind blowing and there was no end to it. That's what God is basically like, like an infinite Netflix with infinite episodes, infinite revelation, infinite goodness, kindness, new experiences with him. And you'll never get tired of it. You'll never reach the end of it. That's what God is like. Obviously, comparing him to Netflix is taking him down a notch or two. But yes, that is how God is. I live in iTunes land where I pay $3.99 for a rental or something. Uh, But yes, hopefully, spiritually, that's not where I'm at. I'm more on the Netflix side when it comes to spiritual things. So... When it comes to beholding the glory of God, let me just give you this one encouragement. Push past the boredom. Push past it because it will be there. I'm I'm like 100% sure at a certain point it's going to be there. And when, if and when it comes, pushing past it will get you to greater revelation, to deeper understanding, to greater resilience and perseverance even. Learning to push past that like, oh, I think I'm done here. Oh, I think I need something new. Pushing past that boredom and going beyond it to behold the glory of God. Sometimes the greatest revelations are right on the other side of boredom. Are right on the other side. Sometimes breakthrough is right on the other side of boredom. So push past it with this understanding that God And who he is, his character, his nature, you'll never reach the end. There's days when I pick up my Bible and I point blank tell God, God, this is boring. (laughs) I'm like, I'm bored. Can you help me? You know, I'm, I'm obviously not seeing something. If this is a book that has fascinated generations and generations, this is a book where no matter how sharp of a theologian you are, you still haven't reached the end of this book, then I'm not seeing it rightly. Something's wrong with me, right? And so God, I need you to help me understand this. God, I need you to help my heart be fascinated by it. Not get bored so quickly, not get apathetic so quickly. God, I need your help. Holy Spirit, would you help me? Would you open up my eyes to see what I'm not seeing? Would you open up my heart so that I don't miss out on something that I'm missing out on? So that's what, you know, I ask God to do in very practical, in a very practical way. It sounds very harsh, but God understands, you know, he knows that you're bored, by the way, before you tell him, he knows that you're bored. So you can just may as well just go ahead and say, it, Lord, I'm bored. I need your help. I'm distracted. I need your help. Open up your scriptures to me. Give me your spirit of wisdom and revelation for me to understand your word. Behold the glory of God. And lastly, lastly, 
from that place of pursuing this thing together as a community, we all like, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God from that place, let the Holy Spirit sanctify you. Sometimes we think that sanctification is actually very difficult. It's, that's the equivalent of saying, Holy Spirit, you're not doing your job. The Holy Spirit's job is to make us more and more like Christ. Conform us to the image of Christ. And so allowing the Holy Spirit to sanctify us in that place, according you know, to 2 Corinthians 3, it's phrased as we are being transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. As we give ourselves to beholding God, we become more and more and more Christ-like. Because here's the beauty of the gospel when it comes to, man, I wish I could just flip a switch. I wish God could just deal with my anger issues or deal with my insecurities or deal with my anxiety. And I wish that all it took was just, okay, I'm saved. I believe in Jesus and now I'm fixed. I wish it was that easy. We're very impatient when it comes to that. In our minds, we think, okay, well, if we want to approach God, then we probably have to clean up a little bit and we have to, you know, kind of ah, like present, make ourselves a little bit more presentable to, to God and then maybe I can approach him. The beauty of the gospel is that instead of cleaning yourself up and then showing yourself to God, it's showing up to God made a mess and you say, clean me, sanctify me. I am not Christ-like, make me Christ-like. I see these areas in my life that need your touch. And me trying to clean it up is not going to fix it. I need your word. I need your spirit. I need your sanctification. Change me, Lord. Make me more like you. And that is the role that the Holy Spirit gladly takes on in our lives. We let the Holy Spirit sanctify us. This is the role of the Holy Spirit to make us more and more like Christ. It doesn't mean that we do away with disciplines. It doesn't mean that we do away with safeguards. It doesn't mean that we don't do our part. But when push comes to shove, the the, the actual workload, the actual person who's picking up the slack, the person who's actually doing the work is the Holy Spirit. All it takes is for us to let him do his work. Sometimes we offer him so much resistance. Sometimes we show him a lot of excuses. Sometimes we try to do it on our own and we say, Holy Spirit, just chill. You know, I'm going to try to fix this on my own. But what Paul is talking about here, he's saying, beholding God, simply allowing the Holy Spirit to sanctify you is what will take you from one degree of glory to another degree of glory and to another degree of glory. This is so important to the Apostle Paul because this is exactly what he himself went through. What gives Pastor uh, Pastor Paul, what gives, true, still Pastor, uh, what gives Apostle Paul the audacity to say what he is saying? He's someone who personally experienced this himself. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the one who was living under the old covenant. He knew all the laws by heart. He obeyed all the commandments to the T. He taught and discipled others. He was held in high esteem as he climbed up the ranks of the religious elite. And then one day on his way to Damascus, he beheld 
the glory of this man, Jesus Christ. He beheld the glory of the risen Jesus Christ. We see it written in Acts 9. This man previously called Saul. He was unleashing persecution against Jesus' followers. He was at the front of the charge to imprison and murder these Christians. He was on his way to find Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem from Damascus when Jesus Christ himself met him on that road. And what he saw or who he saw on that road was so brilliant was so blindingly glorious that he lost his sight for three days and he emerged from that a changed man. What laws and what an old covenant couldn't do to change his murderous heart, one glimpse of Christ was able to accomplish. One glimpse of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. One glance of this God and this man who was ready to persecute and murder Christians became a Christian himself. This was not done through discipleship. This was not done through counseling. This was not done through a 10-step process. This was beholding the glory of God for himself. And this man who was a murderer, became someone who would lay down his life for God. All of a sudden, all the credentials in the world, all the accolades of the world, all the things that he has stacked up for himself, all the fame and the applause and the respect of men, all the plans that he had for his life, they became like garbage. They became like nothing compared to knowing this man. This is the same person who wrote in Philippians 3, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. It is this man who not long before that was a murderer, now became someone who would lay down his life for the gospel. Beholding this Christ, beholding this God, that is what made him become a different person. From a man who lived for himself to a man who would lay down his life for others. From someone who was, quote-unquote, the greatest of all sinners, a murderer, a persecutor, then to someone who would lay down his life would pick up his cross and follow Jesus even to death. That is the power of beholding the glory of God. Sometimes we put all of our hope in something else, on man-made programs. Man-made programs are good, by the way, and they're instrumental, they're helpful. But sometimes that's not what we need to get us where we need to get to. 
It's beholding the glory of God, being reminded once again that this God is worthy, that this God is giving, he's compassionate, he's forgiving, understanding who he is will get us from one glory, one degree of glory to the next, will make us more and more like Christ. And so what are we supposed to do? What does that mean practically for us? I'm not a very practical person in case you guys haven't noticed. What does it mean practically for us? Then it means that we approach worship with expectation. We're not here just to sing songs that sound good. We're here to meet the person behind those lyrics. We approach the word with expectation. We're here to meet the person behind those pages. We approach prayer with expectation because beholding Jesus, encountering Jesus has the power to change you. It has the power to break off strongholds. It has the power to break off addiction. It has the power to heal sickness, to break off depression. It has the power to make you more and more like Christ. I've seen this happen over and over and over again in the mission field, in the place of worship, in the place of prayer. Whenever we turn our faces to God, we allow ourselves to behold his glory together. We lose ourselves in his greatness. We allow ourselves to be touched by his kindness, forgiveness, compassion. When we choose to believe that he's all powerful, that the God who breathed out the stars is also intimately acquainted with every thought, every deed, every feeling, every emotion in me, then things begin to change in me. The Holy Spirit begins to do work in me. And I begin to look more and more like Jesus as I become, I go from one level of glory to the next.